Welcome to the WMKT Week in Review. Welcome to the WMKT Special Edition Interviews. And special welcome to everyone who is coming on over from Sunday Morning Show or having listened to the WMKT Week in Review where uh, they just want to hear a little bit more about what Scott Lidore from North Central has to say about the war in Ukraine. So without further ado, here's uh, the full interview with Scott. Sure. So I just want to get a little background into you, like your education and time at North Central. Sure. So I've been a professor of political science at North Central Michigan College since the fall of 2015. Uh, I got my Ph.D. from Northern Illinois University, where I uh, focused on American foreign policy, international relations, comparative politics and American government, a whole raft of things. Uh, So uh, I have quite a bit of experience in, in that field. Uh, and I've been very, very happy to be here for uh, almost, you know, eight years now, which is, uh, <laughs> you know, goes by in a flash. <laughs> Time but flies. It's been great. So I wanted to have you on today to get your insight into the war in Ukraine, um, kind of your explanation of how you view things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a cliche of sorts, but like, let's go back to the beginning and honestly, before the beginning of the war even. So why right. in your eyes did this war start and what did the West do what did West and Ukraine do or not do for that matter that would have led Putin to invade or at least no longer, you know, de-incentivize him to invade? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the story of like Russia and Ukraine, this is this is a very long story, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Russians treat their history as emerging from what is now Ukraine. Uh, and so Kiev is a very kind of central city and kind of Russian history. Uh, and so from a Russian point of view, they might look at Ukraine and say, well, that that's kind of that's where we came from in a kind of origin story, if you want. Uh, during the Soviet Union, between you know the 1920s and the 19, late 1980s, uh, Ukraine was a part of the Soviet Union, so they were, they were not part of the Russian part of the Soviet Union. Those were kind of distinct spheres, but they were in a country with, with Russia. It was maybe a little bit too far to say that it's the same as like Michigan and Indiana being in a country, but in the way that they were kind of constituent parts of one larger country, they had that very long history of, you know, 70 years or so, 75 years of the Soviet Union. When communism and the Communist Party falls in the Soviet Union in 1991, uh, all the constituent parts of the Soviet Union break into different countries. So Russia becomes its own country. Ukraine becomes its own country, famously. Uh, those next 20 years between 91 and really kind of, uh, you know, 20, you know, um, 2011 is a period there of transition where every part of the former Soviet Union is figuring out what independence means to them and what path they're going to follow. And so you see different countries that were part of the Soviet Union, like Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, the Baltic countries, uh, build robust democratic systems. They become part of the European Union. They become part of NATO. They really integrate to the West. You see other parts of the former Soviet Union, and here I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, what we call like the stands, you know, in Mm -hmm. Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, uh, Turkmenistan, going in a more autocratic direction, uh, kind of dictators for life there, military rule. And Ukraine is kind of caught in the middle. It, it has these democratic um, uh, moments where there's elections and, and presidents serve and they have kind of a robust democratic society. And, but like many newly developing democracies, there's endemic corruption and kind of presidential terms and oddly with people being chased out of power mm-hmm. or street protests occurring. So it's kind of a messy democratic system in Ukraine. You kind of uh, um, apply it to countries like, say, uh, Bolivia or 
uh, Mexico in the Western Hemisphere. You kind of look at and you say, these are democratic countries. They have democratic practices. They're kind of endemically corrupt. The question became about where Ukraine was going to go. Was it going to follow the Russian orbit or the Western orbit? Uh, and over those 20 years or so, Ukraine kind of played both sides, depending on who was in charge or who had been elected. Uh, the Europeans were hesitant to involve Ukraine in too much of European politics and European Union discussions uh, because they were so close to Russia. Um, and the Ukrainians didn't quite know how or where they wanted to go. The, the invasion a few weeks ago, I think, largely stems from uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin's fear that Ukraine was taking definitive steps to align itself with the West and with Europe, and Putin was nervous or worried that he would lose influence or control in Ukraine. Now, we can debate endlessly whether that was exactly the case or whether Russia and Putin are entitled to this kind of influence, uh, but I think at the heart of this conflict is Russian fears about losing influence or control or a sphere of influence over Ukraine as it moved more towards the West. I think that's at the heart of what happened, uh, what's been happening over the last month. That's a great breakdown. Thank you. I, I know that you may, I mean, obviously you're not like a Russian citizen. You may not have like eyes, you know, inside the Kremlin, but mm. is there a sense that Putin not only was worried about losing influence in Ukraine, but also trying to set up a legacy for himself within, you know, the, the very almost religious cultish, you know, history of Russia itself? That's that's a great question. Um, you know, political scientists tend to try to explain or international relations theorists tend to try to explain international events by looking through kind of different levels. And so what you've just touched on is what we might call the individual level of analysis, that what's driving Russian actions is the person of Putin and his fears, beliefs, you know, orientations. Uh, this is something that I would I would not totally discount. Uh, Putin is aging. He has been president since 2000-ish. Uh, Don't quote me exactly, but for almost for 20 years plus. Um, you know, people have done kind of, you know, uh, they've been kind of Sherlock Holmes when it comes to photographs. Mm -hmm. They've kind of tried sure. to assess his health. Uh, certainly the, the official photos that are coming out of the Kremlin that are kind of these... Uh, somewhat hilarious pictures of him speaking with the advisors across like a 15 foot table, uh, you know, either speaks to Putin's uh, hesitancy around COVID and, and becoming ill and or it speaks to certain health features that he's worried about. It, like anybody, you get older and you start thinking, what am I going to leave? He has not been the greatest at identifying successors. Uh, dictators rarely are. Uh, and so as you kind of age and you start to think, well, what what ends am I what what things am I worried about that I want to tie up these loose ends that I want to wrap up and finish before I go? Uh, Ukraine is one of them. You've seen it in the past five, six years, a kind of steady progression, right? Uh, Russian support for insurrection and then basically invasion of eastern Ukraine about five, six years ago. Russian annexation of the Crimean Peninsula a couple years ago. This in in retrospect looks like kind of these bite sized attempts. And perhaps something is pushing Putin internally to say, I don't have much time and I have to wrap this up. I will admit that the first thing I because I had spent a month telling people at the college that I didn't think Russia was going to invade. This sure. is going to be this is not never going to happen because it made absolutely no sense for Putin. And then he did it, of course, which goes to show that you should not listen to every professor who, who talks on these issues. Uh, but my initial reaction, I honestly, my first gut reaction when I read it was, well, he, he's probably dying. 
Like that, that's, that was my, and I have absolutely nothing to sure. base that on <clears throat> other than to say this action makes no sense. Mm -hmm. You can't possibly win this. It's going to unite all of your enemies against you because while they all disagree with each other, the Europeans and the Americans and whoever, the, what unifies people is the common enemy and you become sure. the common enemy. And that's really easy for people to get unified. And so I thought maybe he's dying and mm -hmm. he's like, I've got to do this in the next two years. I have no, no information on that aspect, but there's really, you know, there's a lot of evidence there that something must be pushing him because this is an invasion that made next to no sense. It couldn't possibly be one. It only would serve to weaken him. So why are you doing this? And right. maybe the personal individual issues are really driving this. I don't know. Yeah, because it's such a Hail Mary because also, oh, yes. like, the, the citizenship is also, like, the people in Russia are just, I, I don't know if he's also just, like, kind of on a side quest of trying to, root out like the dissidents in Russia mm. as well through this. I mean, it it, it boggles my mind because it, it is very much of a, a lose lose situation, especially as like the, the very recent couple of weeks as you know, they have obviously been stalled in Ukraine, but he just kind of had kept pressing forward and ramping up, you know, potentially like alleged war crimes even, you know, and it's just going to lose so much trust with his own, you know, base. So this was such a very Hail Mary attempt by him. And that's you put your finger on another series of explanations that political scientists use, which is kind of the domestic level, right? It doesn't have to do anything with the individual of Putin. It has to do more with the domestic politics of what's going on in Russia. And oftentimes this yields to kind of like domestic politics are divisive, but if we can unify against an enemy, the public comes together, right? Um, you know, the, the question for Putin there is, was Russian society really dissatisfied? Did he need like a silver spoon mm -hmm. to wag in front of people's faces so he could avoid discussion of some domestic issue that wasn't going his way? It, it didn't seem like that was the case. He had he I mean, look, he's a dictator and a bad guy, but he's been very effective at neutralizing domestic opposition. He's not at all afraid to throw domestic opponents in jail. Uh, you know, his control over that society is pretty ironclad. Right. Uh, so. I don't I don't understand. I, I get those explanations. I just don't see the evidence for sure. that that would say, yes, of course, this is why he had to do this to distract from domestic problems. He's not up for election again anytime soon. I mean, like, I don't get right. it. That, 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 and so your characterization of kind of like, what was he thinking? I, you know, at the domestic level, I don't see it. But I see it. I see it at the individual level. And maybe again, like the kind of international level of I think Ukraine's slipping away it's time to plant our flag more definitively there so that they don't. And then you send a message to everybody else, don't you dare abandon me, mm -hmm. or what happens to Ukraine will happen to you. That seems to bear more sense, to me at least. Sure. Has, you mentioned like the timing just kind of seemed uniquely odd. Is there, is there anything potentially with Western leadership or the state of internal conflict within you know the united states and maybe other european countries that putin maybe saw as like oh maybe this is my time because oh, maybe they won't you know be as united as they might have been you know 15 years ago 100 percent. so that's that like international level of explanation like what's driving russia i think and th this is where you get to the broadest of explanations mm. but i think if you're putin uh, if you're not driven by a kind of individual or health risk, I think that the international exp situation exp helps to explain a lot of this. I mean, on the one hand, he's looking at a new U.S. president. Now, not an, not an inexperienced U.S. president, a mm -hmm. very experienced president, but a new one. And let's face it, uh, 
countries like Russia, North Korea, China, they like to poke and test new presidents, right? Every time a new president emerges, Kim Jong-un in North Korea fires off a couple missiles right. and then says, what are you going to do about it? You know, and they want to they test this. So a new U.S. president. Um, I think an under, understated thing is the departure of the German chancellor, Angela Merkel. She had been in power for 15, 16 years. She was the center of European European Union diplomacy and, and politics. She leaves the stage and is succeeded by Olaf Scholz. Let's poke this person and see mm -hmm. how they respond, right? So Putin is thinking the U.S. is slightly disorganized. Europe is trying to figure this stuff out. Uh, President Biden announced the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan that did not go as smoothly as he had hoped. You know, so maybe the American appetite for intervention has weakened. Um, you get the election of this president in Ukraine, Zelensky, who is basically a political novice, mm -hmm. um, better to try to attack a political novice than someone who is experienced handler and operator. Um, you know, and so we're, the world is coming out of a pandemic or maybe we're not coming out of it. I mean, who knows? But, you know, the pandemic has scattered a bunch of things. Resources and the economies have gone up and down. Is the West really going to commit to this? Europe you know, has been experienced, the European Union has been experiencing some uh, centrifugal tendencies. I mean, Britain has left, right? Uh, you know, so you, you get kind of Eastern Europe and Western mm. Europe bickering against each other. You know, there's uh, Western European leaders like the Germans and the Spain, Spanish and the French are looking suspiciously at Eastern European leaders like Viktor Orban in Hungary and the leaders in Poland and saying, do we really want to yoke ourselves to these people because they don't quite seem very democratic? Uh, and so I think Putin probably said, this is the time I can go in. It'll be a lightning quick war. We'll beat the Ukrainians before the Americans and the Europeans get their act together. They're all untested. Uh, you know, I'm going right. to take advantage. And that to me makes a lot of sense as well, that mm -hmm. he thought the timing internationally was right. Um, I think what stymied him was that the Russian military underperformed, uh, that Biden quickly mobilized European support and the Europeans rallied together and said, we don't, we don't much like each other, right. uh, but you know who we don't like is Putin, right? right. So like, uh, again, common enemies tend to unify people. And so the Europeans got their act together. Biden got America's act involved. They drew clear lines about where they're going to intervene and where they're not going to intervene to signal to the Russians. We're not putting troops in. We're not doing the, the jet transfers that Poland advocated for, you know, but and they sent very clear lines there. That has been very effective. And but what has made those moves effective has been Russian military ineptness and, as you mentioned before, cruelty, right? You lose the propaganda war mm -hmm. because the Russians aren't seen as liberators. They have unified Ukraine against the Russians, which I think 10 years ago was an open question as to whether Ukraine would hold together. Mm. Uh, but now no Ukrainian is being like, thank God the Russians are coming. Right. You know, isn't this a relief? Uh, no one thinks that. And and they've lost the PR war that the Russians seem like are, are the bad guys. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, again, it, while, while internationally the timing might have made sense, it's execution and it's reception among the world. I mean, this is sure, you bad. know, and that was a good point you made about, you know, because people, especially in the United States, get very, you know, ethnocentric about how they view like, you know, even international conflict. Yeah. And you, know, you mentioned Angela Merkel leaving and kind of leaving that hole in the European leadership because she was probably the most prominent leader in Europe. And then, you know, Boris Johnson, you know, England's leaving the European Union. It's, it's, just, it's just Boris Johnson, you know, yep. he is who he is. And leaving Biden out of it, I think the probably the most impressive leader so far, 
coming out of Europe at this point was Macron, a France, mm-hmm. France president. Um, so I think that he had a very large role in playing. I mean, you always saw him popping up in the news, just kind of like taking some action that no one else really seemed to want to take. So I sure. thought that was pretty interesting as well. Yeah, he, he would go to Moscow, right? He tried to he tried to kind of be the voice of Europe in Russia and say, I am here to negotiate for the Europeans before the conflict. You know, don't do this. It's going to be a huge mistake. So he, he really did a lot of that. And basically, the European Union is like a French-German partnership, right? Mm-hmm. With like a bunch of countries that pended to right. it. Uh, and so he's trying to... Plus, he's up for re-election, so mm-hmm. he's got an election. I think this weekend is his first round of French presidential elections. But this type of thing helps, pre- like these leaders, right. right? Like this is the rally around the flag effect. You, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, democracy's in trouble. We need to vote for the incumbent. Like so again, if this was kind of Putin's thing, where it's like untested German leader, French president up for re-election. Now's the time to strike. Like, but it backfired in spades. It's unbelievable, right? Kind of coming back to the a bit of the United States and yep. European response as well. But so there's isolationists among us and there's those who want to just like fully participate just like boots on the ground, you know, just get in there and just start bombing everything. Yeah. Um, what do you think of those two extremes and why do you think people have just like been pushed over? I mean, there's a lot of people in the middle. There is actually a significant portion mm-hmm. of the U.S. population that is in the middle. But there it was it was quite startling how how the extreme just kind of like burst out of nowhere. Yeah, I think like to take to take them in turn, like, I think the isolationist in uh, instinct is really strong in American history. I mean, you can look throughout this. We, we've always kind of looked at our two oceans and we've mm-hmm. said, well, these are great. Like, we don't need to do anything. And Canada, you know, Mexico, yeah. yeah, you know, um, we got two relatively weak neighbors and two big oceans. We don't need to worry about anybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so that that is true. And that that like guitar chord gets plucked every couple decades, you know, and mm-hmm. so you see that here. But also that's an outgrowth of, let's face it. 20 years of kind of ill-defined intervention in the Middle East and Central Asia, right? Mm -hmm. What are, you know, 20 years of kind of Iraq and Afghanistan and what are we doing there and how much money was spent and is this going to end successfully or not? And so I think there's some weariness of that. And so when someone advocates for we need to commit and put troops on the ground, there's that natural, uh, you know, uh, reluctance to kind of say, gosh, not another one of these things, right? Mm -hmm. The boots on the ground viewpoint is kind of a, a very noble, like, you know, Ukraine is the victim. We need to go help them. Um, I see many people who are advocating for this on both the left and the right. And you see a lot of this in Congress. And of course, it's easy to advocate for this in Congress right, right. because none of the burden is on your shoulders. Right? right. You can say we should do X or Y, but you're not really in charge. Like, And Obama has always said it's a lot different when you're sitting behind the big desk. Right. Like things look a lot different. All of a sudden your words matter. Um, so I think some of this is for posturing. There's an election coming up in like eight months, right? So some people want to try to, mm-hmm. you know, spin this into a campaign message and or there's efforts to critique the president from, from both sides, right? Um, you know, Republicans who want to critique him for either doing too much or too little and Democrats who want to say we need to focus on America first and like Iraq and Afghanistan prove the folly of American interventionism, but also Democrats who say there is a, a global struggle between authoritarianism and democracy now, and we need to be firmly on the side of democracy. Um, You know, Biden has largely channeled that middle position. We are emotionally invested with Ukraine. We will do everything we can in a humanitarian sense and in a supplies sense to keep Ukraine whole. Uh, We will not countenance kind of compromises where Ukraine gives up some of its territory to get Russia to withdraw or to stop uh, cessation of violence. We've continually framed Russia as the bad guy, which I think they they are here clearly. Um, 
but he has also been very clear about what we're not going to do, which is American boots on the ground. Uh, we're not uh, we're, we're not going to seek. He did he did say in Munich, I think last week that uh, Putin has to go. And I thought when I read that, I thought, all right, well, that that's a problem. That's a problematic statement. Mm-hmm. Of course, we all may think that. Sure. And no one might be rooting for, you know, what we really need is 20 more years of Putin. I don't think anybody's rooting for that. Sure. But in a signaling sense, we should not be signaling we are intent on regime change. That's very problematic. Sure. Right? And the reality is Russia's a nuclear power. Russia has a veto on the United Nations Security Council. There is not much more that we can do mm-hmm. that uh, Russia cannot either stop. And we don't want to provoke we don't want to incentivize russia to go up the escalation ladder um because they they have nuclear weapons i mean that's just you know that's the number one rule is that's why we are acting in this kind of semi-restrained ray is because Mm -hmm. we don't want to push uh russia who may feel who may feel that this is an existential contest that russia without significant sphere of influence in ukraine is not sustainable over the long term, and then they choose to escalate, whereas we perceive it as simply a, they don't like the government, so they're trying to invade and change the government. If the risk of miscalculation, if the two sides disagree on what the meaning of the conflict is, risks escalation up the chain, and it's a world nobody wants to visit. Right. You know, we, we briefly touched on it, and it's fairly interesting to me, that this war has not split Americans strictly down party lines. A lot of mainstream Republicans and Democrats have largely supported Ukraine, while the left and right have a baseline agreement for some reason, like far left and right, have that baseline agreement of like not being so harsh on Putin. And the left is like <clears throat> kind of from the angle of Putin. How is Putin's war any different than the United States imperialism in the mm-hmm. Middle East? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the far right's always eager for another war. And kind of views Putin as this, you know, religious figure in Russia. So he mm-hmm. has, you know, this like manifest destiny to go in and take what's rightfully sure. his. So there's those, it is very interesting to me how there, it's not strictly split, split on party lines and these extremes of both parties kind of are a little less harsh on Putin for a variety of different reasons. How would you respond to that rhetoric? Yeah, I think that that's, look, Russia. I mean, we've all seen the Bond films, right? Mm-hmm. Russia's been the bad guy for a long time, right? So it's a natural reflex among Americans when Russia engages in these types of activities to be like, well, Russia's the bad guy. We're just so used to that, right? That like, mm-hmm. we're, it's a very common reaction among us. So to, it doesn't take a lot for political leaders to frame Russia as a bad guy and for Americans to go, oh yeah, I remember that. You mm-hmm. know, they're, they're evil. Um, the other thing about that is, and this is something I try to push my students to think about in my government classes, is the notion that political parties are not monolithic, right? Because someone is a Democrat or Republican does not mean that they believe all the same things as their other co-party members. Mm-hmm. They are a group of factions, right? So in the Republican Party, you have multiple factions, like the kind of, uh, you know, more more kind of like that cold warrior kind of Republican, you know, Reaganite kind of right. pro-democracy, uh, you know, those authoritarians, they're bad people. Um, and or kind of the internationalist wing, kind of the John McCain wing of like, you know, we should get involved robustly in these areas. Sure. But then the, and, th- and those factions may be very large. And then there's other factions, the libertarian faction. So mm-hmm. the Ron, the Rand Pauls who are like, what are we doing here? Like, sure. You know, we're going to get involved for what? And that is, I think, a smaller but still a sizable faction in the Republican Party. And then you have a kind of um, America first, 
um, you know, a kind of quasi-Trumpist group. Like that Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, section. right, that is kind of like, we need to focus on America first, right? And like the rest of the world, you know, they, don't, they, either, they either A, may not benefit from American intervention, or B, American intervention is too expensive, too costly, and this is a European thing, why don't the Europeans pay mm. for it, right? Or they, they, should, they should be doing all of this. So again, parties are kind of factionalized. And so in the Democratic Party as well, mm. you have those internationalist Democrats, the kind of pro-democracy people, um, you know, from like kind of the Bill Clinton, Barack Obama wing mm. of the party. Then you have the kind of, um, you know, the Bernie Sanders or the kind of far left, um, you know, um, Democratic socialists who kind of who do make that equation about kind of like, well, you know, we're going to condemn uh, Russia for invading Ukraine. We just invaded Iraq and Afghanistan 20 mm. years ago. Like, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You know, what's the point of this? Um, as well as kind of uh, Democrats who also might make a kind of um, a kind of not, not I don't want to say America first, but a kind of our problems are more important. You know, why mm-hmm. are we spending a bunch of money arming Ukrainians when people can't afford college or they live in poverty or food stamps or, mm-hmm. you know, child care or whatever? And look, all those concerns are valid. Right. Sure. Um, and so I try to kind of tell students that these parties are not simply like on a continuum or like a horizontal spectrum. They're almost in a way kind of circular, right? Where sure. like those far edges start to bleed over to the other, right? right. You know, um, and so you might have people like Rand Paul or Bernie Sanders who disagree on a whole bunch of stuff start to talk and say, "Well, this all makes sense," and that's not uncommon in American politics. You mm. get strange bedfellows all the time, right? And this is not because they're different or unique. It's because our underst- our conceptualization of parties is poor. We don't we don't mm-hmm. think about them that way. We tend to think of them as like tribes or groups and there are severely demarcated lines between them and right. that's just not the case at all sure so for the the broadest question probably the most yeah. difficult question of the day <laughs> how, what do you foresee as the likely outcome of this war? <laughs> how does it end how does it end oh man um look I, I mean in my in my view how it ends is i think it ends how it started so you know before this conflict russia had annexed crimea and it had largely had control, but through separatist groups of like eastern Ukraine and what's called the Donbass region. Um, what it seems like is Russia's dem- what it, and what their military activities have been over the last 10 days have been focused on that eastern region. They have abandoned assaults on Kiev and other cities in northern and kind of northwestern Ukraine, uh, and they've refocused their energy in the east. My guess is that it ends in a kind of status quo ante. Right. The Russians consolidate control in the east. They retain Crimea. We formally protest this and Ukraine formally protests this and says, you know, that this is unacceptable that Ukrainian territory is being partitioned. But I think that's how this ends, is that the the Russians don't gain much more than they had to begin with. Ukrainians don't get back anything that they have lost prior to the conflict. I, I think that's how this conflict ends. What's going to be interesting is then how Russian power is viewed over the next 10 years. I mean, the, the simple fact of this conflict is that Russia failed to conquer a neighboring country where it doesn't have to have complicated logistics. I mean, very complicated logistics, not like America invading Iraq or Afghanistan halfway around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, in, a, in what could have been a sympathetic population, especially eastern Ukraine, which is dominated by Russian speakers and ethnic Russians, they failed to do that. How is Russian power portrayed? So or, David and Goliath. You know. Foreseen, right? Are they, you know, are, are they are they perceived over the next 10 years as the paper tiger? 
They're mm-hmm. a mile wide and an inch deep, right? They are incapable of offensive action, and all they really have is their nuclear weapons. That would be a severe reduction in the perception of Russian power. I mean, remember when this conflict started, all the really smart talking heads were like, this is going to be over in three days, mm. right? The Russians are just going to steamroll. And now it's been almost a month. And it's an utter failure. So where does Putin go from here? He's going to have to deal with that fallout at home. Again, authoritarian fallout is not the same as democratic fallout. But look, the, the, the body bags are going to come home. This, right. this, is, this is undeniable. You can't tell the mothers and fathers that like Tim's alive and Tim will come back in a couple of years when Tim is really dead. Right. There's going to be some problems in Russian society. How does Putin handle that? Does, is the military trusted to suppress internal dissent anymore when they couldn't conquer Ukraine? Right. Does the military say Putin, um, Putin misled us, Putin didn't supply us, Putin's the problem, right? Mm. Like you get all of these kind of permutations about what do these different institutions, such as they are in Russia, how do they process this and how do they ascribe blame? You already see some of this with Putin blaming generals and blaming ministers and saying, you're not doing the thing I asked you to do. It's very possible that the Russian military, which is a coherent organization within Russia, could say, the problem's not us, the problem's Putin. Like, he's the one who screwed this all up. And then you start to make movements against him. Or, mm. you know, again, these can, this can end anyway. The conflict's going to end with the status quo ante. What right. Russia had to begin with, that's what they're going to have. The permutations over the next five to seven years and who gets blamed... And then what the reaction is among senior Russian leadership and who's in and who's out and what message they try to sell to the Russian people about why this catastrophe occurred that may have soaked up. I mean, Russia committed 90 percent of its armed forces to this invasion. They have how many deaths? Right. And all of their stuff proved incapable of really working. Like, who's going to bear the blame for this? You know, and I, I wonder if. Like you had said that they're a paper tiger, potentially a paper tiger with, with nuclear just, weapons. Just yeah. <laughs> Does that not almost because people might in America and Europe might be like, oh, you know, relief, like, you know, they're actually really not that strong of a military. You know, that's not they're not as dangerous. Does that almost not make them more dangerous where their mm-hmm. their last resort, their only resort is really just nuclear armament. And then it just kind of becomes a very, very um, important issue that the Russian people need to focus on because they're like wow like we can't be anyone and we have this potentially crazy guy i mean crazy guy yeah. that's leading us and if we don't do something he, you know he's or he he's you know a puppy with a tail between his legs yeah. you know the next move he can do and the only move he has left is nukes we need to before we get nuked off the face of the earth because he launches one off into god knows where yeah you know, i think that's i think they potentially could be more dangerous being shown to be weaker than they are. Yes. Um, and, and this is why the argument is always that like nuclear powers have to have robust conventional forces because you don't want someone whose only choice is surrender or, or some sort of dishonorable military solution and the using of nuclear weapons. Right. Right. I mean, that, that's why, you know, Great Britain has aircraft carriers mm-hmm. and you're like, well, why do you have these things? You have nuclear weapons. You're a very small country. And they're like, well, we don't want it to be a dichotomous choice between right. I guess we have to give in or we destroy the world, right? Right. So th- this is this is dangerous. And that's why the 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 dialogue around who gets blamed becomes really important, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And so if if the military, you know, again, like, like you, you kind of posited domestic um, uh, unhappiness over kind of like, you know, uh, we need a robust conventional military force because we don't trust Putin, right? The world might be 
uh, might be very into that as well, right? Mm -hmm. You know, ironically, you get to this point where in order to preserve peace, you might want to see the West supply and build up the Russian military, right? Like, logically, Mm -hmm. that seems to make sense, right? We want to make sure that their military has certain capabilities so that they don't feel the need to kind of decide between dishonor and nuclear weapons, right? That that's dangerous. On sure. the other hand, Western funding of Russian military capabilities, that would not be very popular in as much as yeah, it you're might never be get logical. On that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in, 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 however, it might be logical. Right. Um, so that's, you know, again, then you have to put your, I think you successfully put yourself in the mind of Putin. And so, if it ends with the status quo ante, where Russia keeps the Donbass and, and Crimea and Ukraine gets the rest, like I'd be very careful if I were the West or Ukraine about gloating about that, right? right? And saying like, ah ha ha, we really did this, we won, we won. Like, be careful. This is a this is a cornered, wounded animal that right. no longer is sure that its military conventional forces are successful or equipped. And the last thing you want to do is kind of heckle them and remind them mm-hmm. of that, right? Um, you know, so that that's a very tricky challenge for American and Western foreign policies. How do you successfully manage a relationship with Russia in the aftermath of this? Mm-hmm. What what does that look like? Especially with needing the oil um, yeah, or natural gas, right? Yeah. yeah. So it, it's kind of a, it's it's almost awkward to ask this question, but is there anything good to be, come out of this war, like a a drive for energy independence or tightening bonds of NATO? The question is what's going to be ephemeral and what's going to be quasi-permanent, right? So, like, what you've seen that has been beneficial, and, like, we will caveat all of this with saying that the human suffering in Ukraine, it has not been seen since the Second World War. Right. I mean, the largest migrant flows to Western Europe since the Second World War, um, civilian death, you read these stories, you see these images, the, mm-hmm. the things coming out of Buka and these other places in Eastern Ukraine. They're horrifying in 2021 that we're doing this, right? uh, uh, That we're all capable of this still is, is disheartening. So lots of negativity, lots of bad things. Your question was focused on potential benefits. So we'll we'll go there. Then the ephemeral in the ephemeral benefits, like what may float away here. I think you might be talking about European unity, right? Like they were kind of bickering at each other's throats. They get unified against Putin Where's that going to go? I, I think that that probably comes back in some respect. I think that this is probably a, a kind of ephemeral thing. Um, you mentioned energy independence. Uh, I think that's I think early on, I thought that was going to be one of the potential benefits of this is that countries would have to take a hard look at where they were securing their energy, whether it was uh, internationally based and then who from. Right. Or how much of it is domestically produced and also kind of what kinds. Right. Um, you've seen Germany, whose government contains the Green Party, a kind of very pro-environmentalist party, mm-hmm. essentially make a kind of policy decision over the last week that said, uh, you know, look, we need to be domestically supplied and it needs to be heavily in the renewable focus. And so they're they're building out a plan for more nuclear power plants uh, in uh, in Germany. Great Britain's doing the same thing. Boris Johnson, he of the odd hair. Um, you know, announced a plan from his government to increase nuclear power capabilities in Great Britain. Uh, And so I think you start to see some of this, that like energy is the bedrock of modern society and it really matters who and where you're getting it from. uh, And that you don't want to give away too much leverage to those who supply you with this. So I think that's a a good benefit. Um, NATO unity. I mean, I, I got it. Look, I got to believe that that is uh, a more stable outcome, uh, is that European countries and NATO uh, 
over the last month have announced more plans to uh, invest in their military uh, infrastructure. Germany announced because Germans have been very hesitant to build robust defense mm. uh, capabilities because every time they've built robust military capabilities, it's been a bad story for Europe. Right. You know, so most of Europe is like, you know what? It's OK, Germans. Don't uh, d- don't build too right, many tanks. Yeah. You know, it doesn't work out well for us. Um, but uh, you've seen the Germans commit lots of money in a new military budget as well. So I think that some of that American prodding over the last 50 years that like, look, you, Amer- you Europeans, you need to bear your share of European defense. That is really starting to hit home and governments are saying we really need to do this. Mm-hmm. So I think you're going to start. I think you'll see kind of longer term and non-ephemeral benefits towards European defense investment, European energy investment. I think that European unity within the European Union, that will continue to be uh, challenging as it has. Let's face it, since sure. the Second World War, they've never really gotten along ever. They just kind of realize we're all stuck here. Right. We, we need to, you know, they're kind of like a living in a house with 27 people, you know, and they just say, you're going to get upset that someone's using too much water or, you know, is right. leaving their plate in the sink or whatever. They're just going to do that. But I think that disappears. But I, I think there are longer term trends that will come out of this that will be robust and with us for decades. How is history going to view this war? Is it more notably mm-hmm. than other military excursions taken by Putin in the past two decades? I mean, I would imagine so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, right. Like his his efforts in Chechnya in the early 2000s, Georgia in like 2008, Crimea and eastern Ukraine, right? This is certainly, though. you know, Chechnya was in essence an internal conflict against an ethnic minority, uh, you know, capturing part of Georgia. That was, uh, you, you know, the West's reaction to that was, eh, well, whatever. You know, we don't sure. care too much about that. Look, this is, this is the most robust conflict he's ever been involved. It's the poorest that the Russian military has ever performed. Um, it got the most resonance within Europe. Uh, you know, and the Europeans committed to to trying to tell Putin that this is no longer acceptable. Um, you know, the question is whether this is going to be seen as some kind of turning point. And that's what we are incapable of knowing at the moment, right, is whether we're at some sort of hinge. And the hinge moment can either be for Russian politics and Putin, or the hinge moment can be for, like, in a kind of world historical sense, right? Um Political scientists and historians love to talk about these eras, you know, so there was the Cold War era, then there was a kind of post-Cold War era, this like 91 to 2001 kind of interregnum where like the U.S. was very powerful and there was no other really powerful country. Um, And then we talk about like this war on terror era, like 01 to I don't know how you want to define this, but, you know, sometime in the 20 teens. And then is this a new era, right? Is this a new like great power competition era where it's really going to be us, China, the, the Russians, maybe India, right? Like, and we're all, and now history is back, right? Of like these big superpowers eyeing each other suspiciously, unable to agree on rules of the game, seizing territory for, you know, power and this type right. of thing. Is that back? I tend to think, uh, I tend to think two things. I think one, Russia is not as powerful as we make it out to be. And so the notion of grouping Russia, China, and the United States together, I I, I don't see it. Right. Russia, China, and the United States are are another tier, right? Right. And then maybe Russia and some other people. Uh, The second thing is, is there may be great power competition and it might be around things like technology. It might be around things like green technology or renewables or energy or whatever, or or food or whatever it's going to be around. I don't think it's going to be about land. I think land has diminishing value. Mm. Um, You don't need land anymore, right? right? Like, you know, Napoleon's conquering half of Europe because getting land is equal to wealth. Right. You can look at places like 
Singapore and Qatar and, you know, Taiwan and these other little places around the world. And you're like, man, aren't they rich and powerful? And they are like on three acres, right, <laughs> you know, right. like you, I just don't think land equals power the way it used to. Mm-hmm. And I think that too many I think that if we keep making that analogy to kind of great power competition, there's going to be these like risk like battles. You know, I, I don't see that. that. That's I think that you're fighting over the wrong things if you're fighting over that. But I do think this is some sort of hinge moment, I think for sure. Sure. Uh, Ukraine in the EU or NATO, is that probably going to be something that you mentioned like, oh, we don't want to brag too much, you know, yeah. and um, to Russia. And I think that would be something that would be a bit too far potentially. Yeah. So you think they're just going to kind of keep that neutral status with, you know, favor towards the West? I, I think so. Look, I mean, I think if I'm Russia, I have to insist on that, mm-hmm. even in any kind of informal, informal, unspoken agreement. Right. And there's precedent for this. Right. Finland and Austria. Um, during the Cold War, Finland and Austria both bordered either Soviet territory in Finland or Warsaw Pact kind of pro-Soviet territories in Austria. And there were agreements between the West and the Soviet Union that Finland and Austria would remain neutral. They would not join NATO. They would not join the European Union. They would they would remain neutral, but they could remain democratic. And I think that's the model for Ukraine. And I think you've seen it floated out there. Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has said, like, maybe we don't need to join NATO. Maybe we don't need to join the European Union. Like, maybe these are things we could we could give up. And he's clearly signaling to the Russians and to the Americans, like, this is the ground where the compromise can occur. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether there will be like a formal treaty signing, you know, in sure. like Versailles or something, but um, it's likely that any kind of even informal agreement is basically status quo ante. Russians keep Donbass and Crimea. Ukraine gets the rest. Russia will not intervene in Ukrainian politics and Ukraine will not seek membership in the EU and NATO. I mean, I, and I don't think the Americans, I don't think we would even want that. Your European mm-hmm. Union, whatever, that's for the Europeans to decide. I don't think the Europeans want that. Let's face it. Lots of Ukraine has been destroyed. Right. This is all going to have to be rebuilt. If you join the European Union, it's now on the EU bill to get mm. rebuilt, right? And right. so if you're the French or the Irish or the Germans, you're like, well, what am I doing here paying for this, right? right. Uh, and as, uh, as Americans, I think the American foreign policy leadership, they don't want to see Ukraine and NATO either. That means we have to defend it. Mm-hmm. And that's why we never invited them in the first place. Because right. we thought, no, you know, the Baltics are one thing, right? Like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, they're small. We can reach them. Their capabilities there. Okay, we're fine with that. Ukraine, no way. Too big, too controversial, too developing democracy-ish. You know what right. I mean? Like, the requirement resources. to be in NATO is to be a democracy. Like, you'd have to commit so many resources to defend Ukraine. And frankly, it's just a tempting target for the Russians. You don't want to do it. So I think everyone would be happy, except the Ukrainians, <laughs> in being right. told, like, they will not formally join either of these organizations. And for Ukraine... I think that's the reality they have to live with. Doesn't right. mean that the Europeans and us can't invest in rebuilding Ukraine or mm-hmm. do a Marshall plan for them. That perfectly fine. But these formal memberships with triggering responsibilities, the Europeans, and the Americans want to run away from that like crazy. Right. You know, and I, there's obviously we've mentioned that there's been conflicts, you know, that Putin's been involved in. And we've seen stuff on the news from conflicts in the past 60, 70 years, because um, TVs have been a thing. But this has been, you know, social media. This is the first social media war that people can literally live stream all of the events going on in Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> I know this question's part of a, even a, there's a social part to this question, though, as well. But how, I mean, 
that's probably harmful for people to be viewing. And also, it doesn't do a whole lot of good for diplomacy, I wouldn't imagine, because you get, you know, the citizenry so riled up. I mean, there's a, there's a side yeah. of it's good that the people know what's going on. But, you know, so how do you view how social media played a part in this war, you know, for good or for bad? Yeah, I mean, it's what, like, we used to talk about is called the CNN effect. You know, this was in the 90s, of course, and now it's the social media effect, right? Sure. Is that these technologies bring these international issues, which, let's face it, I mean, Ukraine 50 years ago, that would have been a big thing anyway. But, you know, bring any whole number of issues to the attention of, of the citizenry that 50 years ago the media may have filtered out or the American leadership may have filtered out or whatever. Um, what, it, what, the, what these effects tend to do is amp up pressure on decision makers to do something, right? Mm -hmm. The public sees this incoming stimulus being it either Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or whatever. And they turn around and they say, my goodness, what can we do about this? And that raises the pressure on decision makers to do something, which may be smart to do or may be foolish mm -hmm. to do. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so that often constrains the space that decision makers have to do things. What becomes acceptable starts to shrink because the population is so riled up. Now, whether this is harmful or not, look, we live in a democracy. Right. Leaders should take into account the views of the citizenry. On the other hand, not every citizen is a foreign policy expert, right? Who is uh, well-versed in like how you deal with a global nuclear superpower like the Russians, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that can be potentially harmful. On the other hand, what it does empower decision makers to do is to like what it would empower Biden to do would be to speak if he spoke to Putin or, or something like this, or to speak to the Chinese or however, you, whoever he needs to speak to and to, and to frame himself as the guy who's holding back the dam of public opinion that wants to do really bad things to you, Putin, but I'm holding them back. So you need to deal with me because mm -hmm. I'm the, the good cop here right. and the American public is the bad cop. You know, they want me to nuke the Kremlin mm -hmm. and I'm not going to do that. But that means you need to what I'm offering you is reason is by default reasonable. You know, you need to make this deal with me now. Sure. Um, so that can be a real a real issue. What I've been impressed with and I think everybody in the world has been impressed with has been Zelensky. Right. He has really used uh, access to technology, social media, uh, videos mm -hmm. to absolutely frame Ukraine in the right way to portray himself and Ukrainians as the, the victims here, which, which they absolutely are. And, and his background is an actor. He right. knows what he's doing here, right? He, he knows how to light something, how to set something up, how, how to emote, how to be, how to talk to the camera so that the people watching get that emotion. And that's not something every politician can do. Right. And so Zelensky might not be a political expert, but he's the man Ukraine needed at this time, right? right. And Person that is right what time, has yeah. been so effective and so impressive. Um, whether he can lead Ukraine after this, I, I don't really know. But, <laughs> you know, sure. that has been, well, that has been the tool that that country has needed and he has delivered 100%. So uh, my final question is, again, is kind of avoiding poking the bear of Russia as yeah. they are seemingly in a retreat fashion, mm -hmm. uh, kind of cutting their losses you know, using the term war criminals confused me. Um, generally speaking, there's always a good guy and a bad guy in the war. The lines can be blurred. The bad guy usually invades, starts the conflict. You know, doesn't that already kind of make him a war criminal for starting no. this conflict? Um, so some sort of why is the bar need to why does there need to be a bar to make someone a war criminal? Um, only if they're just bombing civilian centers. Obviously, that makes them a war criminal. But why is just yeah. the invasion not automatically make that? 
than that. And granted, even the side that is generally more good can delve into bad behavior, such as torturing, you know, war prisoners. Um, but I feel like calling someone a war criminal is kind of redundant in a, fa in a fashion and may make the war more difficult to de-escalate because, you know, calling someone a war criminal, they actually have direct consequences, you yeah. know, after the war. Just how, do you, how do you make a peace deal with a war criminal? Right. Right. Like that, that becomes really hard. Um, I think that the move, look, I mean, I think there's multiple causes behind this. One is these massacres in Eastern Ukraine and Bukha and the rumored forced deportation of Eastern Ukrainians. Like this is be, I mean, war is terrible, right? This right. is like so beyond the pale and so awful to contemplate, right? That your natural reaction as a leader is to kind of say, my goodness, we can't have this, right? And like, right. I get how that's an easy rhetorical move. I think a second reason why this these moves may these rhetorical moves may have been used is that let's face it this conflict has been going on for a while mm -hmm. right and so if you want to maintain unity of your coalition being western Europe most of Europe and Japan and all these other places right that are kind of backing Ukrainian efforts at some level you have to continually not raise the bar but you have to kind of remind people like this is still going on Right. And you go, oh, yeah. And it's not only still going on, it's getting worse. And mm -hmm. people say, oh, well, we can't uh, slack now. We can't weaken. It's not time to pivot to another issue. Right. Like. Right. So I think that helps to benefit. Thirdly, like there are kind of quasi legal consequences for this. Right. Sure. Um, you know, I think what tellingly what the American leadership and Western European leadership has done has been not to ascribe certain Russian units or Russian troops as war criminals, but they've tried to put it on Putin, right? And said, he's a war criminal. This again, frames him in a very negative light, which mm -hmm. I think he totally deserves, uh, but also keeps the focus on kind of, this is not just like a couple army units gone bad. This is the whole thing is rotten, right? right. Now, what are the consequences of this? In reality is they're pretty limited, right? Um, the, World, 20 years ago or so, the world created the International Criminal Court, which is a judicial body in The Hague that can try individuals and leaders who are, who are accused of war crimes. They have a whole trial. They have a jail. It's been done before. Um, the problem, of course, is that this is just not going to work if you, if you try to indict Putin as a war criminal. Yeah, how do you, you can, drag him out of you the Kremlin? You can do it. Right. He's got to leave Russia. He's not so foolish as to do that, right? right. Uh, and no one's getting to him, right? So... I, I think it also speaks to the human need to like hold someone responsible, right? Mm. Who this is so terrible. Who's responsible. We like this notion of like the wanted poster and the kind of, you know, these are criminal acts and this person did them. So I think on the one hand, it's, it's propaganda. On the other hand, the world might be actually trying to set a precedent that like, this is bad. This is beyond the pale. Not that invading a country is okay. Like right. you said, right. Um, on the other hand, the world does kind of say, look, conflict happens. Every leader has these kinds of things on their hand, right? Um, you know, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, right? Donald Trump, you know, all engage in kind of military adventurism and these types of things, right? Emmanuel Macron in France authorized French intervention in West Africa. They, they all have blood on their mm -hmm. hands, right? But what they're trying to do is kind of say, like, this type of blood, while regrettable and often having bad consequences, is nothing compared to the blood on your hands, sure. right? And so they're trying to get away from this kind of double standard or not a double standard but a kind of uh, false legitimacy or false equivalency that, mm. you know, your actions are just the same as mine. Sure. We say, no, 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 of course. Right. Of course not. You know, yours are worse. The ultimate effects of all this is it won't be much. I mean, you know, I suppose Putin's only really held responsible if a he's overthrown 
and the people who overthrow him say we're going to haul him off to the Hague and have him tried right. and jailed over there. Um, I, I just don't, you know, if I was buying lottery tickets, I would not buy that lottery ticket. Right. Know? Well, and that's actually <laughs> worrisome, too, because it's like if Putin even has the sense of something, just, you know, someone coming yeah. to overthrow him, he's got that button right next to him. and I'm, There's nothing stopping him at that point, you know. So that's. It's it's very confusing, not only internationally but domestically for Russia, how to move forward. Yeah, that, I think that's why how the end of this war is handled is really critical, and I think that uh, President Biden and other European leaders, while I think the right thing for them to do is to give Russia space, like they cannot, Russia can't have a peace in which they are humiliated. Like that doesn't right. work. But taking actions that avoid Russian humiliation are going to be domestically unpopular, right? Because Americans and Europeans are going to say, like, how come we are coddling this guy? He's terrible. Mm -hmm. And the leaders are going to say, you just don't, you know, how the end of this war is handled is really important. The messages we send to Russia and to Putin so that some sense of stability is restored. Right. You know, that's going to be really important. But I think think politically it's going to be very fraught. Right. Especially if... Especially lifting those sanctions, too. Especially if those sanctions start to get lifted... Right. In a kind of one for one deal with Russia about their behavior or whatever. Right. Um, that will be politically unpopular because it will look like we are coddling the dictator, which in some senses we are because we have to deal with who's in power. We can't mm-hmm. deal with the world as we want it to be. Right. He's in power. So we got to make the best of this. Mm. Um, the best of it is getting troops out of Ukraine, rebuilding Ukraine and getting to some kind of stable relationship with a Russia that we wish were different but isn't right. Well, I'd like to end the show, which has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, saying Scott was one of my professors at North central during my time there a few years back. Um, during my classes with him, there were always uh, a few older adults auditing the class, which I thought was great. I think the yeah. auditors really enjoyed it. Um, can you kind of explain what auditing is? And if someone's, you know, is just like, wow, like what a profound man, I want to take some of his yeah. classes, you know, but I actually, I don't want to be graded. Like, yeah. Auditing's great. Um, Auditing is having all the fun of being the college student without having to do any of the work. Uh, And so North Central has a great policy where if you are an Emmett County resident who is 60 years of age or older, you can audit classes at North Central for a very nominal fee. I don't know what the fee is, but it's not much. Uh, And auditing is you come to class, you participate in everything the class does, you are given the chance to do all the readings or all the activities and stuff, but you don't have to take any tests or write any papers. You're not graded. You don't get academic credit. Um, if you are younger than 60, but still interested, we'll, uh, the college has a policy to allow you to audit. You still have all the same perks and everything. Um, I, I believe, though, that you have to pay the regular tuition fee, which I, I don't know off the top of my head, um, but you, you do that. So there, there's options for everybody. It's a lot of fun. Um, the, you know, uh, the students who are older who have audited, love being around the younger students and hearing their perspectives. The young students love being around the older students to hear their perspective. Uh, and so it, it's a great mix, and you get a lot of uh, different experiences and voices, and, and uh, I really encourage anybody to do it. And they can feel free to contact me at the college if they have any questions, and I can be happy to give you more information. Perfect. Scott, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate it. <laughs>